This Supreme Court audio has been brought to you by a grant from the National Science Foundation to the Oye Project, www.oyez.org. We'll hear argument next to number 90-1419, National Railroad Passenger Corporation versus Boston and Maine. The spectators are admonished not to talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. And number 901769, Interstate Commerce Commission versus Boston and Maine Corporation. Mr. Roberts, you may proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case is here from the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. That court overturned the Interstate Commerce Commission's construction of a statute entrusted to the Commission to administer. Congress acted promptly to overturn the Court of Appeals' decision, amending the statute while the case was still pending on rehearing. The Court of Appeals nonetheless stuck to its guns and denied rehearing. This Court should reverse. Twenty years Does everybody ago, agree that the Congressional Amendment applies to this case? Yes, Your Honor. It was made explicitly applicable to any case pending before, during, or after enactment of the Act. Twenty years ago, Amtrak inaugurated its Montrealer service between Washington's Union Station and Montreal. The train traveled through Vermont and New Hampshire over the Connecticut River Line, a line owned over some portions by the Boston and Maine and over other portions by the central Vermont. Things ran smoothly until the mid-1980s when Guilford Transportation acquired both Boston and Maine and the Delaware and Hudson Railway. Now, the Delaware and Hudson owned a north-south line of track parallel to the Con River Line west of Lake Champlain in New York State. As a result, the Con River Line diminished in importance to Boston and Maine and to its parent, Guilford, to the point that, in 1987, Boston and Maine listed its portion of the Con River Line as track it anticipated abandoning. Conditions on the line deteriorated, the Montrealers slowed to a crawl over the Boston and Maine segment, and in 1987, Amtrak canceled Montrealers' service. To restore that service, Amtrak determined that it needed to rehabilitate the Con River Line, and Congress appropriated money for that purpose. Amtrak was unable to agree with Boston and Maine on terms under which it felt it could responsibly invest the necessary funds, and it turned to the Interstate Commerce Commission for relief. It sought two things from the Commission. First, an order authorizing it to condemn the Boston and Maine segment for just compensation, and second, an order authorizing it to then reconvey the line to the central Vermont, which had agreed to pay for the line, to rehabilitate it, in part with funds provided by Amtrak, to maintain it in a condition suitable for Amtrak's passenger service for 20 years, to grant Amtrak trackage rights for that period, and also to grant the Boston and Maine trackage rights so that it could serve its existing customers on the line. Both steps in this transaction, the condemnation and the reconveyance, required ICC approval. Amtrak sought approval for the condemnation under Section 402D of the Rail Passenger Service Act. 
That statute specifies that if Amtrak and a railroad are unable to agree on the sale of property owned by the railroad required for intercity rail passenger service, that Amtrak may seek an order establishing its need for the property and requiring its conveyance on reasonable terms and conditions, including just compensation. Mr. Roberts, does the ICC have to make a determination as to whether the property is required for intercity uh, rail passenger service? We believe they have that it, to look at that question and we believe, decide it. We believe that it does, Your Honor, but of course there's quite a dispute over what that passage means. The Court of Appeals um, determined that required for intercity rail passenger service meant basically that Amtrak could not get by with anything else. And what it reasoned was that since Amtrak didn't retain the fee interest in the Boston and Main line, that it didn't require it. Since it didn't require it, it couldn't condemn it in the first place. D does the ICC have to decide whether a less than a fee interest would meet the so-called requirement or that what is required is less than a fee interest? No, Your Honor. Uh, the it's I a fee or nothing? The ICC reads that language, required mm -hmm. for intercity rail passenger service, to mean simply that the property that's involved must be put to use by Amtrak in providing that service, as opposed to being used for something else. The language doesn't necessarily have to mean indispensable, as the Court of Appeals read it, as the Boston and Maine reads it. This is a familiar usage of the word required. But, but who decides whether an easement will suffice as opposed to taking the fee interest in the property? Amtrak decides in the first instance whether it will put this property to use in providing intercity rail passenger service. Right. And if that, and if that is in fact what the property is to be used for, that statutory uh, mandate is satisfied. The Commission looks to make sure that it's being used for intercity rail passenger service and then that is, that is sufficient. Nothing in the statute suggests that the ICC is to engage in a process of paring down the property interest to the uh, least restrictive alternative. Uh, and in fact, the amendment, of course, makes clear that that is not the case. Uh, is there any contention that the review that is required of the FCC was not undertaken in this case? I don't, as you define it. As I define it, I don't uh, believe so. It is true uh, that there is not a precise finding that this requirement was met. But there is certainly a precise finding in the opinion of the Commission that the Boston and Maine interpretation of the provision is not the correct one. There is also certainly findings that the reason Amtrak is proceeding is to restore the Montrealer service, to put this line of track to use in providing intercity rail passenger service. And that is a sufficient finding uh, on the record. What the amendment said in 1990 was that Amtrak may reconvey property it has condemned to a third party if the Commission finds that the reconveyance furthers the purposes of the Act. Now, the amendment simply makes no sense unless it is read to authorize precisely what Amtrak did here. The reasoning of the Court of Appeals was that Amtrak if Amtrak intended to reconvey property, it couldn't condemn it. The amendment says Amtrak can reconvey property it has condemned. So it simply cannot be the case that the reconveyance dooms the condemnation in the first place. In our opening brief, we challenged the respondent to come up with an explanation of what the amendment means, if not that this type of a transaction is authorized. It came up with no explanation in its brief, and it will not be able to come up with an explanation here this afternoon. I challenge you to come up with an explanation as to how this amendment goes to the word required. 
which is the basis for the for the uh, uh, decision below. And I think I think, we, I think it's a dead dead standoff on that one. Neither one of you can explain the amendment. Well, if it's a dead standoff, then the, the commission under under Chevron is entitled to deference with, in, in its construction. Not on the but, basis of the amendment. What the amendment said, what the court of appeal, the amendment needs to be understood in light of the court of appeals decision. Court of Appeals said, you can't condemn property that you're going to reconvey because the reconveyance proves you didn't require it. What the amendment says is, you may condemn, you may reconvey property that you have condemned. It has to be understood primarily on the basis of its language. And nothing in its language, whatever, goes to the word required, which was the basis for the Court of Appeals decision. Well, with respect, I disagree. The language of the amendment makes clear that it is not an answer to the Commission's order to say that you reconveyed that, therefore the condemnation was no good in the beginning. Because the amendment makes clear that the Amtrak may reconvey property it has condemned. If it may reconvey property it has condemned, it simply cannot be the case that the reconveyance dooms the condemnation in the first place. Reconveyance is only one manner of proving that you don't need the property. The, the principle at issue, uh, the principle that underlay the Court of Appeals decision, was that Amtrak did not need the property. Nothing in the amendment goes to whether you have to show a requirement for the property. Well, what the Court of Appeals said is we can tell that Amtrak did not need the property because it reconveyed it. And the amendment at least undermines that holding of the Court of Appeals. Now, the, the going back... So, so, so then you'd have, we'd have to remand to the Court of Appeals to say you should not consider the reconveyance automatically to show that they didn't need the property, but, but you can still continue, consider whether they needed the property or not. Well, then let me turn to the... You don't you want to waste all that time, do you? No, you I... come out the same way. I don't think a remand's necessary for that purpose because under Chevron, the, the decision was wrong even before the amendment. The, the statutory phrase required for intercity rail passenger service uh, was read by the Court of Appeals and is read by Boston and Maine to mean that nothing less will do. That is not the only... The same way Thomas Jefferson read the necessary and proper clause. Well, and quite different than the way Chief Justice Marshall read it in McCulloch against Maryland. It's a familiar usage of the word in the law. Uh, necessary is a synonym for required. Chief Justice Marshall told us it means convenient or useful. Uh, we cited in our opening brief dictionary definition that require means to call for as suitable or appropriate in a particular case. As in it's cold outside, if you go out, you'll require an overcoat doesn't mean that you can't go outside if you don't have an overcoat. It means that you'll find one suitable or appropriate if you do go outside. The, the error in the Court of Appeals reading of required for intercity rail passenger service, I think, is clearest if you look at Section 402D as a whole. Boston and Maine and the Court of Appeals say that the purpose of this <coughs> provision, required for intercity rail passenger service, is to make sure that Amtrak really needs what it's taking. But that's exactly what the next sentence of the statute is addressed to in very specific terms. The next sentence says... Well, what, are, what, are, what section are you reading now, Mr. Roberts? I'm referring to section 402D, uh, which is set forth in an appendix to our, our brief, page 1A. The first yes. sentence contains this required for intercity rail passenger service language. But the next se uh, sentence in the statute goes on to say that Amtrak's need for the property shall be deemed to be established unless the Commission makes two contrary findings. In other words, the question of whether Amtrak really needs this property as opposed to some other property is addressed in the second sentence, the one that begins, unless the Commission finds. It would be a very strange statute that had the same question addressed in the immediately previous sentence under the vaguer required for intercity rail passenger service uh, provision. 
the Boston and Maine reading of the phrase required for intercity rail passenger service uh, would probably never be satisfied. Nothing is ever really indispensable. Amtrak can get from Washington to Montreal uh, via Detroit uh, if it had to. Um, and in any event, the phrase required for intercity rail passenger service is at least susceptible to more than one meaning. That being the case, the Court of Appeals should have deferred to the Commission's reasonable interpretation, an interpretation manifested in the upholding of this transaction. The Court of Appeals also cited the structure of Section 402 in reaching its, its conclusion. It noted that Section 402A of the Act provides a right of Amtrak to seek trackage rights. It surmised that that was all that Amtrak needed in this case, and therefore it concluded that Amtrak had to proceed under that provision and not under Section 402D. Again, the ICC, the agency entrusted with administration of this statute, read the statute differently. It determined that Amtrak had an election of remedies. Certainly nothing in the statute imposes an exhaustion requirement whereby Amtrak must proceed under 402A before looking at 402D. In fact, quite the opposite. Section 402D sets forth very precise prerequisites. You're, you're talking about 402A and 402B. Uh, D, I'm sorry. If D? I, okay, yeah. and, and it's, it's the basic statute is 45 U.S.C. Section 545 that's set out at page 136A of the petition for the writ? No, um, it, the basic statute, 402D, is codified at 45 U.S.C. 562-D. And well, it is, it is a, the, the appendix to our brief, uh, page 1A, sets forth 402-D. The appendix to the government's brief? Right. Um, 402-D sets forth the very precise prerequisites that Amtrak must meet before invoking condemnation authority. An exhaustion of 402-A or any of the other provisions in Section 402 is not listed among the prerequisites. Mr. Roberts, uh, I, I, of course, required can be read the way, uh, the, way the Commission wanted to uh, in isolation, but, but isn't it unreasonable to read it that way when if, if you do not read it to impose a requirement of necessity in the, in, the, in the narrow sense, the only thing Amtrak has to do in order to condemn property is uh, is to show either, either, that taking it away uh, will not impair the ability of the railroad it's taking it from to function, or that uh, it, can't, uh, it can't do without the property itself. Congress determined that Amtrak was entitled to those, those powers on that basis. It set forth a very uh, explicit presumption in the statute. It addressed that question when it determined to give Amtrak eminent domain power. And it said that Amtrak's need for the property shall be deemed to be established unless both of the uh, contrary findings that you mentioned are made. You really think they gave Amtrak the power to take any property from any railroad in the country so long as taking that property didn't impair the ability of that railroad to... Well, operate. That's that's how you're reading it. Well, and so, so long, long as they're using it, use it. For, so long as they use it, so long as they're unable to agree, and so long, of course, as the railroad receives just compensation for its property. Um, that Amtrak is put in a very disadvantageous bargaining position in dealing with railroads. Uh, this case demonstrates that the Boston and Maine owned the only line over which Amtrak wanted to run its Montreal service to serve the states of Vermont and New Hampshire. Uh, Boston and Maine held all the cards. 
Congress gave it this broad eminent domain power precisely to redress that inequity, inequity in bargaining position. Would you take the position that in any instance in which uh, the exercise of the eminent domain power followed by a reconveyance would in effect give Amtrak a cheaper way uh, of using the particular line that Amtrak therefore has met the significantly impaired requirement? The significant so that whenever, well, let's say, whenever uh, one of B&M's competitors uh, comes along and says, well, if, you know, you condemn it and give it to us, uh, we will maintain the track for you cheaper than you would have to chip in for the B&M to maintain it for you. Is, is, is that always going to be sufficient to satisfy the significantly impaired requirement? Well, I think it, it may well always be sufficient under the statute. The significant impairment question goes to what's happening to the railroad from, whom the, from which the property is being taken. So that wouldn't be, be the, the, the pertinent inquiry. But uh, certainly Amtrak is required by statute to take steps to minimize federal subsidies. It is required by statute to take steps to encourage private parties to subsidize uh, intercity passenger rail service. Um, I don't does, think... Does that mean then that whenever uh, a competitor of the condemnee uh, would make a favorable agreement with Amtrak, uh, to, to maintain the, uh, the, the line uh, at, a, uh, at a cheaper maintenance or upgrading cost, uh, that it will always uh, be lawful under the statute uh, no. for Amtrak to, or for the Commission to allow Amtrak to condemn? Well, no. And the reason is that the reconveyance from Amtrak to the competitor also must be approved by the ICC under Section 11343. And in that on that question, the Commission looks at normal competitive concerns. What is this reconveyance from one rail carrier, Amtrak, to another going to do to competition in the rail market? And if the Commission refuses to approve the reconveyance, the transaction cannot go forward. Here, the Commission expressly examined the reconveyance and found that competition would not be diminished in the market, that in fact Boston and Maine would benefit from the improved, uh, improved tracks. Um, but looked at solely how is, from how is Boston and Maine going to benefit from having its competitor on this line uh, have an, an upgraded uh, uh, track uh, in part with the, the subsidy of a federal government? Because Boston and Maine retains trackage rights to serve its customers on the line. doesn't need them. Pardon me? It doesn't need them. It does need – it doesn't own the track anymore. So it needs trackage rights to serve customers it already has on the line. And it was granted those trackage rights in this transaction. It gets to run over vastly improved track, track that the Commission prior to this transaction found was desperately in need of maintenance. Um, it gets to use that track now in serving its customers, and it has received just compensation for its line. It's such a good deal for them. You think they would have uh, entered into that deal with Amtrak. And, and that leads me to a question. Uh, doesn't the statute require that the condemnation can only occur if, uh, if negotiations have failed, what is, what is the language? No, uh, the, the language is the rail, railroad and Amtrak are unable to agree. Are unable to agree. Upon terms for the sale. The now, you think that means nothing more? What, what was the actual con con condemnation price here? Two and a half million? Was that uh, it's still subject to, to challenge. Yeah. That's an issue. But Give or take the commission a found 2.3 million. 2.3 million. And Amtrak came in. And how much did Amtrak offer? A, a million. A million. Amtrak offered a million. Said, gee, well, we can't agree. You won't take a million. Well, Is that all the statute means? You come in and pick a ridiculously low, low number, offer it to the other side, and say, well, we can't agree, and then I can condemn it. No, and what the Commission expressly found in this case was that the parties were unable to, to agree. 
Of course uh, not. I, I don't deny that. They were unable to agree in that sense, but is, is that really what the... Don't you think there's a, there's a good faith uh, uh, negotiation requirement there? And if there is, it was satisfied in this case. I, what the commission, was that a finding below? What the commission found, I'm reading from page 130A of the uh, appendix to the petition, uh, the commission found that Amtrak has set forth a detailed history of its dealings and negotiations with the Boston and Maine. Amtrak made a valid offer to purchase, and in response, Boston and Maine said it found no need to pursue the very complex offer to purchase. The I'm, I'm waiting here, good faith, good faith effort. It, it was when I quoted the part about a valid purchase, a valid offer to purchase. Oh, I'm sure it was a valid offer to purchase. It was a valid offer to purchase. If, if they had accepted it at a million dollars, it would have been accepted, and, and that would have been a contract. That's a valid offer to purchase. And in the, in the context, as the Commission stated, in the context of the long and laborious dealings between Amtrak and Boston and Maine, um, uh, the Commission found that the parties were unable to agree. There were long and laborious dealings about other matters, but this was the only dealing about a purchase. Amtrak came in and said, give me, uh, I'll give you a million dollars, and they said, don't be silly, that's ridiculous, uh, which of course it was. Well, any condemning authority is always going to offer a good deal less than they, they think the property is worth uh, as, as a first step in a negotiation. Well, this wasn't a, uh, and this, uh, that's true, and, and this wasn't a first step. It was, as the, as the Commission found the result, the culmination of long, a long and laborious history. Well, and, and the, every, every negotiating authority doesn't have a provision like this that says if the parties are unable to agree. I mean, other people well, the, can just walk in and say we're condemning it. The, the, the requirement can't be that the party offer a fair market price for the property uh, objectively determined because then there'd be no need for the condemnation authority in the first place. It doesn't say, for that matter, as the point we've been discussing, it doesn't say good faith efforts. I, I'm not going to be able to agree uh, with a, a Rolls-Royce dealer on a price, price for his car. Uh, if Amtrak only has $500,000 in the bank and offers $500,000 and it's inadequate, the parties are unable to agree, and Amtrak can proceed through some other route. And that's all the statute requires. The Commission made that finding and affirmed it repeatedly. Seems a rather silly requirement, if that's all it means. It's absolutely pointless. Well, this, isn't it also relevant? Maybe I don't have the facts well in mind, but didn't B&M respond by saying, in effect, we're not willing to sell, but what we'd like to do is negotiate a different trackage arrangement? Well, they wanted... And they thought that would be... They wanted a different trackage arrangement. They wanted Amtrak to uh, pick up the tab for uh, maintenance of the line, which Amtrak thought had been agreed to under a 1977 uh, agreement. Um, and at the same time, of course, they were listing the line uh, for abandonment. So a trackage rights agreement from Amtrak's point of view wouldn't have been uh, of, of, much, of much use. Uh, Amtrak uh, uh, made what the, what the ICC found to be a valid offer. The Court of Appeals didn't disturb that finding. Um, it it uh, was rejected. B&M didn't just say, uh, come back with a higher price. It said, we see no reason to pursue uh, this purchase offer because, as you've mentioned, they thought Amtrak should go about this through an entirely different route. Um, Amtrak met the plain statutory requirements. The parties were unable to agree. The property is going to be put to use, is being put to use today, in Amtrak's provision of intercity uh, rail passenger service. And the Commission rejected the two findings that had to be made to rebut the presumption of need. That, that is an alternative holding of the Court of Appeals. It was also in error. Uh, the Court of Appeals turned the statute on its head when it said the Commission failed to make adequate findings to support Amtrak's need. The statute presumes need. Now, the dissent in the Court of Appeals would have remanded for a determination of, of the extent to which 
the full fee was needed. Yes. Well, the, I guess it was a concurring opinion by, yes. Um, we don't think that the statute calls for any such findings. Section 402D is quite precise in what's required. Findings of that sort um, are not at all called for by the statute. Commission has to find the al- obligations can adequately be met by the acquisition of alternative property, including the interest in property. Maybe it has to determine what interest in this, this property was required. First of all, we only reach that question if the common carrier, the ability to discharge the common carrier obligations of the railroad are going to be impaired. You need to make both the A finding and the B finding uh, before rebutting the presumption of need. The Commission here said that Boston and Maine's abilities were not going to be significantly impaired, primarily because they received trackage rights in return and just compensation. Uh, turning to that, though, the Commission reads that phrase as meaning property in some other place. Can Amtrak serve its need by alternative property or interest in property? In other words, interest in that alternative property, not the property that's subject to the condemnation. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Roberts. Mr. Goldblum, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This is a case about a condemnation statute which allows the taking of private property. Simply stated, our position is that Section 402D, the statute that's implicated directly in this case, cannot be used by Amtrak to condemn more property than is required for intercity rail passenger service. In this case, the Commission failed to make a relevant inquiry into what property was required for intercity rail passenger service. It it erroneously assumed that whatever Amtrak wanted, it was entitled to to take, and proceeded with a, a case in which it ultimately approved the conveyance. In our view, that's an an erroneous construction of the statute. Well, Mr. Goldblum, is it not correct that the statute says that unless the Commission finds A and B under uh, Section 1, then the need of the corporation for the property shall be deemed to be established? Uh, Yes, Chief Justice. It, It does say that, but that is a second level of inquiry that the Commission must make. The predicate for the invocation of the statute appears right out in the first sentence of the statute. And and in this particular statute, we have a series of limitations written into the statute which provide, in the first instance, that the parties are unable to agree. There is a definition in the statute that the the property that is is being sought is required for inner-city rail passenger service. And there's a third limitation, because there's a description of the term property with a parenthetical, including interests in property. So you say the term need of the corporation, as used after subsections A and B, does not include uh, the uh, requirement for uh, intercity rail service, uh, and it doesn't suffice to uh, dispense with the negotiation requirement? Yes, Chief Justice, that, that, that is our answer. And, and let me amplify, if I may, on that. When Congress enacted this particular section in 1973, they also enacted a similar provision, Section 305D of the Rail Passenger Service Act, which provides Amtrak with the authority to condemn 
non-railroad-owned property, that is, property that might be owned by any other private party. And that statutory provision has a similar language in it, which says that the property, again, must be required for intercity rail passenger service. Now, the reason why the requirement for intercity rail passenger service has to be met in the first instance is that the second level of determination of need applies only if it will substantially impair the obligations of the, care of the railroad to function as a common carrier. Now, let us assume, for, as a hypothetical, that, rail, that, the, uh, that Conrail owes, owns a building over here on Pennsylvania Avenue. That building can conceivably be taken by Amtrak for whatever purposes, if it can be shown that the taking of the building doesn't impair Conrail's ability to, to act as a common carrier. If you don't go through the first level of limitation uh, that is required for intercity rail passenger service, you never get to the consideration of why they're taking the property in the first instance. And this is consistent with the nature of this very type of statute. Namely, I don't think you're disagreeing with the government on that point. I think the government concedes that you have to go through two inquiries as well. Uh, the only difference is that uh, the government thinks that required, the first inquiry, the required inquiry is just, you know, are you going to use it for your, for your rail service? Whereas you say it, it means it's essential for your rail service. I don't believe it's, it, it, it goes as far as the word essential. I think the word required has a, a, a meaning which has context in, in the statute. Uh, let, me, let me deal with the government's argument first. They say required means useful, appropriate, Amtrak, the petitioner says, in connection with. But the statute has a, 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 a language Congress used a very stringent verb in connection with this particular statute. And that verb, required, informs a court or the commission how Amtrak intends to be using the property that it intends to take. Now, it's not a question that is, that is absolutely essential or indispensable. The question is required. And, and in the context of this statute, where, they, where Congress speaks in terms of property, including interests in property, there is a whole uh, history of statutory construction of, of the concept of eminent domain in private hands that the least interest that is intrusive should be taken in the circumstances of an of a eminent domain statute. Let me and just what, interrupt because I think I'm following, but I want to be sure I'm right. Is the gist of your argument that the fee interest wasn't required since a leasehold or an easement was sufficient? Or are you also arguing that they did not require the use of this particular trackage? No, we're not arguing, Justice Stevens, we're not arguing that they did not require the use of this trackage. I see. You're arguing they didn't need a fee. They didn't need the fee. And, and, and to take that a step further, when the Commission is confronted with a, an application under Section 402D, it should look to see what is it that Amtrak requires. And if they can determine that Amtrak requires something less than a fee, then that is what Amtrak should be entitled to get. Won't it always require less than a fee when it's trackage rights? I mean, the only thing it needs is the right to go over the track. So when we're talking about trackage, won't, it, won't the result of your analysis always be that something less than the fee will suffice? Uh, no, Justice Souter. Uh, there may be circumstances where what they require is property. And property... Well, I'm assuming that they're taking it from another railroad. 
It, it may be property. Right. It may be maybe just real estate taken from another railroad. When, when for the, can you give me an example of a case in which they would need to uh, to take the fee and trackage rights? I cannot. There is a suggestion in the concurring opinion by Judge Ginsburg in the court below that, in a circumstance where Amtrak was dealing with another railroad, and where, under the facts in, any, in that particular hypothetical, Amtrak was unable to get the, the type of trackage int rights interests or the cooperation of the other railroad uh, in, uh, in running its trains over those tracks. In those circumstances, Judge Ginsburg suggests that perhaps 402D could be used to obtain trackage rights. But then she goes on to say, this case doesn't, doesn't establish that, and on the facts in this case, it is clear that something less than the fee would be what Amtrak should be entitled to get. And if I may amplify further, Section 402A has a provision for granting trackage rights to Amtrak when they are unable to, to agree with a railroad over the use of the tracks. And in those circumstances, the Commission has the authority to impose a trackage rights agreement on a railroad and to, and, and to impose conditions for not only trackage rights, the, the furnishing of services and facilities. Well, Mr. Goldblum, I thought the problem here was that the Amtrak could get a trackage right, but it needed a trackage right over a rail line that was maintained adequately to enable it to run its passenger trains at the appropriate speed, and that what it would get here with the trackage right was simply a right to run its railroads over very poorly maintained rails at speeds that wouldn't meet its need. So it needed something that was going to be maintained at a higher level than B&M would, would maintain it. And Boston and Maine had made a determination that for its purposes, it didn't need to maintain the tracks at this higher level degree of maintenance. Now, isn't that right? Well, Justice O'Connor, under 402A, the Commission can impose conditions upon the railroad in providing the trackage rights. It, it could require Boston and Maine to upgrade the tracks and to maintain them. And in so doing, it would look to the provisions that Congress imposed in 402A, which requires that, that uh, the, uh, there be no cross-subsidization by the freight railroad of the, of the uh, rail passenger service. And the incremental costs for the quality and nature of the service being provided to Amtrak, Amtrak are to be provided, are to be paid for by Amtrak. And that's what was at the, at the core problem of the, of the controversy well, between... Uh, in an order Amtrak. under A, it would be the Commission would have to order Amtrak to pay the costs. That's because the statute requires that. Amtrak doesn't have the money and has found a mechanism whereby it can get a third party to provide that cost, apparently. By brokering its condemnation authority to a, a, a third railroad. And in so doing, it has gotten around the provisions of 402A, which expresses the congressional policy to prevent cross-subsidization, to require that Amtrak bear the incremental costs 
of the rail passenger services. Mr. Goldblum, it, it occurs to me, I, I'm not sure you're making uh, Thomas Jefferson's argument. I, I think you may be using required in the same sense that uh, Marshall um, used necessary. I, I, I wonder why you don't place more stress on the, on the parenthetical in subsection D of, uh, of 562. It reads, um, uh, upon terms for the sale to the corporation of property, parenthesis, including interests in property required for intercity rail passenger service. It, it goes out of its way to put in the parenthetical, including interest in property. And, and the general condemnation section, section, what is it, 545, doesn't in, never includes any such parenthetical. It says the corporation is authorized to acquire any property, and it doesn't say parenthesis, including interest in property, which the secretary acting in further blah, 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 blah. Uh, uh, why don't you place more stress on that? Well, I... I I do place stress on it because I believe the the reference to including interest in property is a congressional recognition that something less than the fee might be called for when Amtrak seeks to condemn. So, so the required modifies the interest in property, and the interest in property has to be used by the corporation, not necessary to the corporation, but used, and you're saying it's not being used here, the fee. It, it's not being used because as the Court of Appeals found, and as there is no dispute in this case, Amtrak did not want to own the property, did not need to own the property, and had no, had no interest in owning it, ever. And so if it, if it was capable of being satisfied by a, an interest in property less than the fee, then the fee, by definition, could not be required. Yes, but that, I mean, you're, you're making two different arguments. One, you're arguing they should have proceeded under 402A to, to require trackage rights. Now you're saying they should have proceeded under 402D1 to condemn trackage rights? I'm, what I'm saying, uh, Justice Stevens, is that when the Commission is confronted with an application under 402D, it should examine to see what it is that Amtrak is required, Amtrak requires. If it looks at, w at what Amtrak requires and sees that what it really needs is a trackage rights agreement with imposition of conditions and uh, maintenance requirements, then it should say to Amtrak, your proper relief and remedy is a petition under 402A. That's what you should do. If, on the other hand, it, it, it determines that a trackage rights agreement will not suffice, that something more, let's say, and, and it's been suggested in this record by one of the, uh, the vice chairman of the commission, that perhaps an easement to go onto the uh, uh, tracks and to perform uh, uh, maintenance services of, of that character, then perhaps trackage rights agreements and an easement might be sufficient to fulfill Amtrak's requirements. you think you could uh, logically make the same argument in the face of the statute as now amended? Uh, yes, Justice Stevens. You do? Because... Uh, we don't believe the, the statute as amended uh, affects the result in this case. Well, the statute as amended assumes that there would be situations in which the condemnation would, would require a pr greater property interest than the Commission absolutely needs because it can reconvey uh, the property and obviously take back something less than the fee. That, that, that may very well be, and we've, and we've suggested that there might be circumstances where it might be necessary under a certain under the facts of a particular case to take a larger interest than, than Amtrak actually needs, such as a take a large building and to raise it and put up a small structure. But in this particular case, the Court of Appeals had 
more than one finding. There is a finding, there is a conclusion or a holding in the Court of Appeals that, that says that Amtrak may not take property that it does not itself intend to own. And as to that holding, the Court of Appeals, the, the Court of Appeals decision has been overruled by the, nine, the 1990 amendment. The Court of Appeals went on and had other holdings. It said that when the Commission is faced with a 402D application, it must make a determination as to what is required for intercity rail passenger service. It found, and this is a unanimous ruling by the Court of Appeals, because Judge Ginsburg also agreed with this, that the Commission had not made that determination, what is required. And as I read the, the government's brief, they admit or concede that they, the Commission did not make a determination as to what is required. They say that some kind of an abstract, perhaps, decision was made. The fact of the matter is that it came up this way. At the very outset of the proceedings, early on, right after Amtrak filed its petition, Boston and Maine came in with a petition to convert the 402D proceeding to a 402A proceeding. And it said to the Commission, this is really a, a dispute between us over the upgrading and the maintenance of these tracks. And we're having, a, we're having a fight over who is supposed to pay for this. And we think that Amtrak should pay for it, because it's, after all, it's one train that goes back and forth once a day. And it's going to cost $400,000 a year or so. And it should be Amtrak's responsibility. Nevertheless, we're willing to put this before the Commission and have the Commission decide who is to pay for the upgrading and maintenance of these tracks. The Commission, and they did this before holding any kind of an evidentiary proceeding, before looking at any evidence, simply on the basis of the filings that, the, that Amtrak had made and that Boston and Maine had made, said, we reject this petition to convert. Amtrak has an election of remedies. It has asked for relief under 402D. That's all we need to look into. They're entitled to a conveyance if they have, uh, if they've made that application, and then we're going to go on with our proceeding. Now, they did so uh, without, a, without an evidentiary proceeding, and they, they were applying, in a sense, the same statutory phrase that any federal district judge would have to apply, faced with an, a, an attempted taking by Amtrak of non-railroad property. And they did it almost, in, to, to draw an analogy, if uh, there was a complaint and an answer, and a district judge looked at the complaint and an answer and made a determination without doing anything further. And in this case, the Commission did not make a finding under, under the required phrase of the statute. Now, Court of Appeals said that. They also said that the, that the Commission's ruling did violence to the, to the provisions of 402A because they overlooked the, the, the requirements of 402A that require Amtrak to pay the incremental costs of rail passenger service. And by allowing Amtrak to evade those requirements, the Commission failed to uh, adhere to the statutory requirements. Now, may, may I just ask you a question that goes to that point? Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that under, under subsection D, uh, there might be a need to condemn uh, together with an easement allowing the uh, Amtrak to come in and do its own maintenance. Given the fact that under A, uh, the Commission can always require Amtrak to pay the incremental cost of, of maintenance to get it up to Amtrak standards, there never would be uh, a possible showing of need under D, uh, would there? Well, I think that I think it would be a very hard case 
to make. I'm not saying that it couldn't be made under any circumstance, but it would be a hard case to make, particularly since the Commission has the authority to impose these requirements on freight railroads to allow Amtrak to use their tracks and to provide services and facilities. And so, and so armed with the, with the authority of the Commission, Amtrak can clearly go to, to a, rail, a, a railroad and say, this is what we want and this is what we need when it comes to providing services for us. And since Congress has set out a very particularized scheme under which Amtrak is entitled to get those services, facilities, and use of tracks, we don't think that the use of a condemnation power, which traditionally has been construed by the courts, particularly in the hands of a private party, as being limited, restricted, uh, narrowly construed, to give Amtrak the right to, to use it to, to the extent that they've seen fit to use it here. The, this, this, the statutory scheme is such that Congress very clearly imposed limitations on the authority of Amtrak to obtain property. Now, the government makes a further argument. They say that Chevron uh, controls the uh, determination of the Commission. But for a number of reasons, Chevron is not applicable. To begin with, the statute is not really ambiguous. Chevron applies where you have to grope and figure out what the statute really means. The statute has plain language. It's to be construed by the Commission under some circumstances, by a whole host of federal district judges under other where the, the property is being sought to be taken by, uh, from, private par uh, from private parties that are not railroads. Certainly, the Chevron decision wouldn't apply to the uh, rulings of 600 or so uh, federal district judges. But there are limitations in this statute, and we don't believe that the Chevron case applies where there are limitations. In this particular setting, the Commission has construed away the limitations that are in the statute. It never really applied them, and therefore we can't see how Chevron would be applicable. And thirdly, we don't believe it's a permissible construction of the statute. Because, as I've indicated, there are circumstances where, using the, the Commission's construction, Amtrak could take an office building, uh, a property of, uh, that it's owned by another railroad, um, without ever showing that, the, that that property is required for intercity rail passenger service. And the only, meaning, the, the only restriction would be whether the taking that property impaired the functions of the, the condemnee's ability to perform as a common carrier. And finally, we don't think that Chevron applies because there just simply is a non-finding here. The Commission did not make the finding. As we read the government's uh, brief at page uh, uh, 16, they, it, they concede that the Commission does, did not and does not need to make a determination of what the lesser interests that are required in the circumstances of Amtrak's petition for the taking in this case. And so where the Commission did, does not make a finding, we don't see how Chevron can have any application. This case... What precisely is the statutory language which you rely upon to require the finding you just referred to? The, the, the precise statutory language appears as in, the, in the opening sentence of Section 402D. It says, if the corporation and a, rail, and a railroad 
are unable to agree upon terms for the sale to the corporation of property, paren, including interests in property owned by the railroad and required for intercity rail passenger service, the corporation may apply to the commission. We view those phrases at the, at the beginning of this statutory provision as being statutory predicates to the invocation of it, taking power. Inability to agree is, is one of them, you would say? Unable to agree. Yes. Is and one. required for intercity rail passenger service is another? Yes, sir. Yes, Chief Justice. And a, a, a third limitation, although it's not written in as a, as a finding, but it's certainly imp, clearly implicated in the statute, is that it be property, including interests in property, which is a clear recognition by Congress that perhaps in, in these circumstances something less than the fee would suffice. You read the word property. You read the word property in the third line there as property interest. For sale of the corporation of the particular property interest owned by the railroad and required for interstate. That, that's the way you, you read it. I mean, it's, it's certainly a permissible reading, right? Well, of, of, of property, I read property as being the fee. Well, well but I thought, well, uh, I, I thought you read it as that they, they, they had to demonstrate that the particular property interest which they needed and which is owned by uh, the railroad is the one that they, purport, they need to condemn, they want to condemn. I guess it comes down to the same thing. Yes, this is, this is what they're seeking to condemn. The, 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 this is the subject of the condemnation. I take it there, there is no contest in this record that the uh, trackage was needed and needed in an upgraded condition. That, that is no, there, there, we, don't, we do not dispute that. The, the question is who is going to pay for it? And this is at the bottom and of the And I take it there is no disagreement uh, that negotiations broke down. Uh, we can uh, argue about whether or not there was a good faith offer and so forth. There were negotiations with, between Amtrak and Boston and Maine. Throughout. And they were unsuccessful. They were unsuccessful, and they were always about who was going to pay for the maintenance and the upgrading of the tracks. And when Amtrak made its $1 million take-it-or-leave-it offer, it did so on the assumption that Amtrak, that, that Boston and Maine was not going to accept it. And as soon as it received whatever response it got, and the response was, we're ready to negotiate, we're talking about good faith negotiations about the problem that we have with the upgrading and maintenance of these tracks, they treated it as a rejection, and they filed with the commission. Did the Court of Appeals go into this particular aspect of the case at all? The Court of Appeals did not reach that, Chief Justice Rehnquist. They... Are you really going to win very much if you win here on your argument? Uh, yes. Don't you just have to, you, you have to go, it's going to go back to the commission, isn't it? It's going to go back to the commission, but if the commission properly construes the statute, it will see, on the record in this case, that Amtrak does not require the fee. Well, unless they find that Boston and Maine are so intransigent, nobody should deal with them. Well, if they're properly uh, applying the statute, as the Court of Appeals held, and as we would urge this court to, to uh, affirm, uh, the, the Commission should look to see what it is that Amtrak requires, and if Amtrak requires really nothing more than a trackage rights agreement, which incidentally is all that it ultimately got after the conveyance to central Vermont, 
then that's what the Commission should impose upon Boston and Maine. Well, in determining what is required, can the ICC look at the cost uh, to Amtrak as part of that determination? I mean, Amtrak would assert, I require the use of the tracks at a reasonable cost or at a cost that we can afford to pay. The, the underlying basis of the Rail Passenger Service Act was, was to make Amtrak pay its fair share of the cost of rail passenger service and not have the freight railroads subsidize this operation. But if it can do that through condemnation, and conveyance to a third person, why isn't that a, a fulfillment of, of its statutory duties and of the policy of the Act? Because it ends up by taking property, in, and, and this comes to, a, to our, our third argument, it ends up by taking property from A and giving it to B with no real change in the, in the public use. But there's been payment of fair compensation, of course, by definition. That has just simply the simple payment of, fair, of just compensation without a corresponding change in public use has never been considered to, to meet the, the public use test of the Fifth Amendment. Mr. Goldblum, do, do you, you make briefly in your brief the unable to agree argument, but you don't, don't go into much detail on it. Do, do you think these negotiations as, were, as the government said, uh, went as far as they could go? No, you're what, what more should have been done? What happened with the negotiations were that they weren't going in the same direction because an, uh, a take-it-or-leave-it offer of a, of a ridiculously low price is not a fair proposal. Uh, Boston and Your Maine, client willing to sell at any price? Our client offered, our client discussed the possibility, and, it's, and this is disclosed in the record, of selling the Connecticut River line to Amtrak. If it did so for a fair price and under the proper circumstances, it would continue to have the same kind of rights that it has to deal with its shippers and its but Did it make that discussion about sale before or after the $1 million offer? It was long before that. Yeah, but after that, they, in their responsive letter, they didn't discuss sale. In their, in their responsive letter, they did not. They suggested negotiating a trackage. They suggested negotiating. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Goldblum. Uh, Mr. Roberts, you have five minutes remaining. On the um, unable to agree point, uh, Petition Appendix 131A, the Commission went further, said nothing in this record provides any indication that Amtrak and B&M will ever reach agreement on terms of a sale. And I think that's because they were proceeding in different directions. Boston and Maine wanted to talk about trackage rights. Amtrak wanted to talk about the fee. Of your case that uh, Amtrak needed the fee? Amtrak met the statutory requirement of need because its need was uh, presumed. Yes, Amtrak, my question. Amtrak did need the fee because one reason it needed because the fee. Because of Boston, they could not get out of just a trackage right uh, uh, arrangement with Boston and Maine, what they had to have. One, Is that right? Even under a very strict reading of the required phrase, they needed the fee because they needed to have it to reconvey it to a railroad that had an incentive to maintain the track at their uh, speed conditions. Boston and Maine itself argues... Now, who... Uh, who uh, the Commission never uh, made that finding. Well, there... That did it. It did make a need finding, yes. Well, did it make the kind of a finding I just described? 
It said that Amtrak had carried its burden of establishing its need. Well, uh, did did they say they needed it in order to convey to somebody that was more reliable in Boston and Maine? That was the transaction that was before the Commission, and that was the context in which the Commission made the finding. I guess I'll just have to read the... Look at them. The, the commission did, they didn't say that, did they? The commission did not make the findings about Boston. Well, that's and, what the Court of Appeals didn't think it made that finding. It, it did not. And our position is that it doesn't have to. It, Nothing. And Judge Ginsburg didn't, said they didn't she make would have sent findings. back for further You don't disagree findings. with that, do you? I don't disagree that they made no findings adopting Amtrak's version of events. I do think that Amtrak's version of events is supported in the record, and that supports the agency action. And I also think that nothing in Section 402D requires the Commission to make those sorts of findings. That would be judicially imposing an additional requirement in the statute that's not found there. What the need, statute, uh, need, uh, well, you could say, well, maybe they found need, but they didn't give an, an adequate explanation of it. The statute says that need is presumed unless the Commission makes contrary findings. And the Commission rejected each of the two contrary findings in the statute. Um, so, so you are identifying what is required with presumed need. In other words, you're, you're saying there is not a two-tier analysis, there's a one-tier analysis. No, I, th- I think it's a two-tier analysis, but required simply means that it's going to be useful or appropriate and put to use in providing intercity rail passenger service. And, and you would satisfy that, that level of analysis at this point simply because the ultimate uh, expense to Amtrak of, uh, of maintaining the track will be less under this arrangement. That's the way you satisfy that. Well, we don't have to go that far. It's satisfied because this property is used in providing intercity rail passenger service. And Montreal runs over what used to be the Boston and Maine line. All right. Well, again, I guess your argument, again, assumes that you have an absolute election as to whether to proceed under subsection A or subsection D. If you don't make that assumption, then your, your first-tier analysis of what is required uh, depends upon assuming that a lower maintenance cost is sufficient to satisfy the, the standard of requirement. That, that may well be, but I'll re- reiterate what I said earlier, that there's nothing in Section 402D or A that imposes such an exhaustion requirement. Oh, uh, but if the question is need, why did Amtrak need the fee when in the long run it gave it back to somebody? It needed the fee in part to be able to convey it to a railroad that would maintain the line. But Boston and Maine... they didn't need to own the fee uh, for any more than a day, I guess. Well, if they didn't have the fee, they wouldn't have been able to engage in the transaction. Um, Why why wouldn't they... Why did they have to take the fee away from the Boston and Maine? Because the Boston and Maine, as it itself emphasized, had no incentive to maintain these tracks in a condition suitable for Amtrak service. That's their basic point. We don't, we don't, 17 miles an hour is fine for our trains. Well, the Court of Appeals said we don't, we don't make these determinations on, a, on, on this record. The court, the ICC should have done its work, and we think counsel is very persuasive. The only thing is counsel uh, hasn't, got, hasn't got the authority to present this kind of an issue to us. Well, the Court of Appeals could only have reasoned that if it were imposing a requirement that you will not find in Section 402D. The Commission made each of the findings under Section 402D. And they do not require findings that particular railroads not living up to its obligations. That, that's not something set you forth say in the statute. need is presumed? Need is presumed is exactly what the statute says. Yeah. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock. This Supreme Court audio has been brought to you by a grant from the National Science Foundation to the Oye Project. 
www.oyez.org.